everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of May 5th, 2022. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Elliman. Hello. And uh, filmmaker and writer and West Coaster, Gigi Hawkins. Hi there. This week, we're going to be talking about word of mouth and the return of original movies to box office power. We are going to be talking about NAB. You might be done thinking about it, but there's some stuff I didn't realize I missed. So we're going to catch up on the stuff you might have missed. We're going to do all of that. Then we're going to talk about an Ask No Film School that I thought was a really good one. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. So, in a little bit of sacrilege, on this, the day that Marvel turns 14, 14 years since Iron Man came out, instead of talking about (laughs) studio movies, we're instead going to talk about the fact that originals are sort of incredibly dominant at the box office right now, between the word-of-mouth powerhouse, everything, everywhere, all the time, always, and uh, the original concept, (laughs) Northman, although it's tricky calling that original because it, it is an adaptation Totally. It's pre-existing IP, sort of, <laughs> but not really. It's the oldest. It's some of the oldest IP you're going to come across. Not the <laughs> oldest, but it's old. I know. They I was really reading a list of like the oldest profitable IPs somewhere, and like the first one they listed was like 1988, the birth of Sanrio and <laughs> Hello Kitty, and I was like, is that really as old as IP goes? Is that really the birth of IP? I, it's funny because if you ask development people, they say they they get a never-ending stream of Robin Hood themed pitches because it's like free IP because it's mm-hmm. it's it's not copyrighted by anyone. I don't know what I know exactly what it's it's in the public about. domain. Is public domain. Public domain. Public domain. Yes. Well, and you know what's so, amazing? I remember distinctly when I was at USC, one of the screenwriting professors saying, "You guys should all read all the hit books from the 1800s." and find something in public domain, Robin Hood. You can write a Robin Hood take. Everyone knows who that is. So it was specific advice I was given by a screenwriting instructor to do that. So I wonder what percentage of all of those Robin Hood scripts that poor development exec has to (laughs) sit through come from USC alumni who took that screenwriting teacher's advice, which I still think is actually good advice. I think there is good pre-existing IP in the public domain, but maybe Robin Hood is not... The yeah, one. don't go with Robin. <laughs> don't go with I, Robin Hood. I guess I'll never get over the sort of '90s run of Shakespeare adaptations. Like, keep those Ten. coming. Where are they now? Where is the equivalent of Ten Things I Hate About You? Yes, yes. Yeah, or yeah. The second, you, know. you could do every well, every single one any way you want in any time period, and you know, the the writing is pretty solid. You know, <laughs> on the Shakespeare stuff. It took me a minute to remember Richard II because it wasn't turned into a high school movie. And so literally, I, well, I thought you were only talking about high school adaptations of Shakespeare. And I was like, but there wasn't a... Oh, yeah. No, there was like actually a, a good one. Not that 10 Things I Hate About You and Romeo Plus Juliet aren't great. They're both wonderful. They're both fantastic. I mean, like a... Like the Richard II from the 90s is the, like the serious one, right? Yeah, there was Othello. There was... Kenneth Branagh went on a crazy run of them. But The Northman is... It is sort of a Hamlet adaptation, but here's where it gets really fun if you're a nerd like me for this stuff. Hamlet was based on some IP as well, apparently. I didn't know this, but the Northman is based on the Norse mythology that Hamlet was based on. So Shakespeare was writing 
based on some like, you know, 500-ish year old, maybe more IP. Isn't that bizarre and amazing that that's how the world, you know, well, is most just of like, Shakespeare oh. was pre-existing IP, right? Almost all of I it guess. was based on something that was popular to the extent to which some of the IP it was based on was even plays. Or, or so, the yeah. histories. Yeah, I mean, obviously the histories were based on some. But yeah, it's crazy. I, I kind of love it because it does sort of dilute the case. The, the hard line we have in our minds that I also fall onto sometimes, which is like, this here is original. This here is not. Because I think it's a much blurrier line than that. But I still, you know, there, there's, there's such, there's gradations and the Northmen compared to an adaptation of something from a sequel or adaptation from something in the last 50 years feels pretty original in that, like, you know, there aren't, like, uh, I think he's called Amlet, the original Norse. There's not fans out there dressing up as him or wearing that shirt, uh, nor are there for Hamlet. I mean, actually, I mean, they're there will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think I have to take it back and say, I, I don't actually think that we can say Northman is original IP. Yeah, it's tough to it's it's a tough thing to say because it's so Hamlety. But there's so much of it that's like there's like you're expecting beats from Hamlet. I think part of it is also that what percentage of the of the movie going audience in this country is so familiar with Hamlet that they if they didn't know they would be like, oh, this is Hamlet because it's not beat for beat. It's similar, but then it veers away, but then it like touches again, and then it. So I don't know that it's it's as obvious as like for theater geeks like me, people who grew up around it that know like, oh yeah, that's Gertrude, that's behind the curtain, you know, those kinds of things. Well, well that's you're actually going to... Right there. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here with my analysis, just for funsies, because I like funsies, which is, I want to make an argument here, which is we've been using the term, the broadest concept of IP, intellectual property, of like, is there an intellectual property? And actually, with Shakespeare, there's not, because no one owns it. It's public domain. Property is ah. owned things. So... But even separate from that, I think when we talk about movie IP, what we should specifically be talking about is a guaranteed audience. The idea, if you're making a Marvel movie, is there's a guaranteed audience of a certain number of people who are going to show up just because it's a Marvel movie. I know many people who have seen all of them because there's a sense of completeness and and it comes with sort of a pre-built audience in mind. I don't think Hamlet has that. Like, I'm a Hamlet fan. I really like that play. But I've maybe only seen a third of the Hamlet movies, including (laughs) Hamlet movies by the people I like who make movies, like the Ethan Hawke Hamlet from the 90s. Still haven't seen it. Love Ethan Hawke. Yeah. So I think Northman doesn't count as IP in In that that sense. But I'm going to say that in film, uh, it, it always goes back to John Waters' quote, which is the obligation of a filmmaker is to be famous yourself, because then you have the power. Mm-hmm. And that's why we all know John Waters by name. He deliberately went out to create a public persona because then you're not at the mercy of actors. People are going to see a John Waters movie, mm-hmm. not a Ed Furlong movie. And in this case, I think both of these directors have built on it. Like among my students, Eggers is like somebody that they like the number of times I'm like, all right, mm-hmm. we're going to make a trailer for a famous movie. And it's the lighthouse. Like mm-hmm. the number of times I see video essays on Eggers work like the the like Eggers has created an audience for Eggers. Now, I think that audience has grown with the Northman. I think there's a lot of people seeing yeah. Northman who maybe hadn't seen the earlier work. And so I don't think it's like a guarantee, but I think that that pre-built audience can often 
when it's combined with like a studio marketing budget and a good movie that creates word of mouth sort of grow bigger. And I think the Daniels have done the same thing. And for me, it's really hard to think back to a time of like a completely brand new movie from a completely unknown director. Like Brick is the first thing that comes to mind where it was like a big hit and really had legs and no one had heard of Ryan Johnson yet. And I'm sure there's other examples in the last 15 years. I feel like Six Sense. Sense. Boogie Nights. Oh, Six Sense. There was a time. There was a time. Well, and I mean, it'll still happen occasionally. Wes Anderson. Yeah. No, I mean. Although I've told you my Wes Anderson anecdote, right? I was at dinner with a Disney executive and I offhandedly mentioned Wes Anderson's first movie, Bottle Rocket. And the executive was like, oh no, Wes Anderson's first movie was Rushmore. And I was like, um, and I said something in response and the executive was like, no, Bottle Rocket wasn't a movie. His first movie was Rushmore. (laughs) And I was like, oh, Bottle Rocket doesn't count in your world. Like it doesn't exist <laughs> in your universe, Disney executive. So it is interesting that, to think that's about. Funny, They're... it was so LA. It was so LA. I've got like ninety LA quotes from that like one yeah. dinner I went to where a Disney executive was at the table. Well, this is the first Eggers studio film, even though he still shot it, and it sounds like a very Eggers way, where there wasn't, you know, he wasn't shooting for coverage. He wasn't shooting for, you know different ways to cut it. It was such an intentional process because he's such an intentional director, which, you know, reading the New Yorker profile on this process, it sounds like there was some moments of him and his editor sweating as they were getting these studio notes and running these test audience things. And they're like, well, there's really nothing to cut to around this moment. And it, you know, if you read to the end of that article, it ends up being you know, everything's okay. The studio is happy. But I actually would argue that The Witch was in a way like, yes, in the hor- maybe specifically in the horror space, but he came out of nowhere. And, and, and I think he had a big director attached to as an executive producer because the, something with the, the script was connected. But talk about pulling not IP necessarily, but pulling material from a very specific time and place. It's, you know, a uh, New England folktale. So I'm very excited to see, I haven't seen The Northman yet because I was traveling, but I'm very excited to see what the Eggers studio film is. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it's it's still very true to him. I interviewed him. He was on the podcast last week. We talked a little bit about that. So can we call him friend of the pod? Yeah, he was. And he talked a little bit about that. And he talked a little bit about being like a combination of like the confidence to do that stuff, but also having the humility to recognize that 
everyone on a set is more experienced than him because he's made three movies and everyone working on a set has made countless. And I thought that was a fascinating take, especially from a director who's so celebrated already, you know, Mm -hmm. to have that kind of awareness. But yeah, he has carved out a style, a niche. And I know that we're talking about word of mouth. And and Northman, its first weekend from a business standpoint, did something interesting. Like it didn't have a great first weekend, but the Monday after it started going way, way, way up. But I think it is not going to end up a quote unquote, like big hit. Like there's no way basically on the projections, but it is a very inspiring situation to see that a director who's carved out a very specific niche and a way of making movies and telling stories and is absolutely committed to that over mm-hmm. Everything else was able to secure, you know, this kind of money to make something big and grand. And they didn't, you know, have them chop it all up. No, not that there was really even an option, like you said, with coverage. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, that's a great story. And the Everything Everywhere story, similarly, the Daniels are like uncompromising in their, this is how we want to do it thing. And they you, they had a much, much, much smaller budget. And that movie just keeps growing in terms of screens and we also had them on the pod and their DP and editor. And they were all great. And and there's a lot of like, to that movie, a lot of creative ways to find solutions to problems because they did not have the budget or the mm-hmm. time to execute. Whereas I think what's interesting about Eggers on the other end is like, he really had like no, there were no handcuffs put on him. <laughs> you need this, you can have this, which is amazing. But in both cases, it's great because yeah, on in in the context of, Like you so accurately put it, Charles, it's not about where this idea come from. It's really about how popular is this idea before anyone shows up? Is this idea prepackaged, pre-marketed? And the answer in both these cases is no. You know, people have to see the movie for either the directors or the actors, which is kind of old school, to be honest, at this point. Or, I mean, except for like Maverick or actually even that, but like... they're seeing it for the directors, the actors, or because it looks interesting. That's crazy. Hey, I've heard this is good. (laughs) That's what's happening. I wonder if there is going to be a sort of IP fatigue, especially with this streak of based on a true story, specifically in the tech industry, TV shows. I'm I'm like, man, do we really want to hear about uber and theranos i mean there has to be a backlash to that being like half the new tv show (laughs) yes yeah that can't last that's been insane i was never down for that (laughs) but there's a lot of slots to fill on all these streamers like (laughs) i mean there's just so many things get put out that it sort of feels like okay i mean i guess they think that's a good bet i don't know i'm at a loss netflix hamlet that's my question Netflix is kind of. I mean, it would be for teens, right? Yes. Yeah, euphoria, Hamlet. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the the long short of it is just that there is still such a thing as success by word of mouth through theatrical release. I have, as a fan, told people, "Go see everything everywhere. It's great." I've told many people that, and they're like, "Can I watch it at home?" And the answer is no, not right now. And people don't like that. Like people outside of like, like movie theater people like us, like a lot of people who I know in the world, relatives, family, whatever, they're like, oh, I'll wait, you know? And I get that. It's like, the, there's also still the COVID stuff, but 
it it is like this movie is fighting for its life in theaters for screens. And and I think there's a big Marvel release coming up this weekend that'll definitely knock it out of a bunch of them. But it's it's amazing that you can have in 2022 a building like we got to put this thing on more screens. People really want to see it. And it's built entirely by the people saying, hey, that movie, you should definitely check it out. And there's nothing more powerful than a recommendation from a friend like across the board. But on top of that, I think there's something to be said about saying, and this is a movie that's worth seeing in theaters to get people into into the, into that experience if it moved you that much. Personally, I say that a lot. So I think people have just tuned it out. (laughs) The only person I can, only my wife can I be like, let's go see it in the theater. Everybody else is like, okay, yeah, you always say that. I also, I'm kind of a, I hate being told how to consume something. Like whenever someone sends me a link and they're like, be sure to put on your good headphones and turn the volume all the way up. I'm always like, fuck you. Like I can consume media how I want. Like. Maybe it's just because it's a very specific kind of filmmaker that will send me a link for that. And they're like, put on the good headphones and crank it. But like, you know, I don't feel fuck you when people tell me to see something in theaters because I understand the instinct. But for me, I'm like, I don't know, like, like we, we consume wherever and whenever we can. And so like, for me, like, I've loved all the people telling me to see the movie. They make me happy because I'm like, Ooh, this is a movie you love so much. But like, if they added, if they appended it, with and you have to see it in theaters. I don't know. That'd be weird to me. Like I, I feel like I'm arguing with you, and I don't want to be like confrontational for no reason. No, but, like, that I, one is I think one you're right. Like, I'll do you. I'll, I'll. I think you're right, though. I'll do you. I'll go one further too. I think some people don't like being told, especially from somebody from me specifically, from somebody like me. I don't think they I like, don't like, like it. Oh, when you okay, tell me yeah, to do yeah, anything. Like, <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's because I know, like, I know you movies. Tell me to do something. I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> I will not do the I, thing George. I pretty told much me to do. don't tell you to do things though. I'm I know, I'm not that's direct, why we get along. I never directly I ask sometimes. <laughs> but when it starts, you're, man, you're, it's gonna na- be a rebellious problem. in nature. Yeah. I'm gonna keep an eye on it then. But seriously, I think that there's a certain like when the filmy people start saying, Oh, it's so great. I think a lot of folks roll their eyes. And I think I count to a lot of people as filmy. So I do think there's like, oh yeah, what it like if like if I told people you got to see the lighthouse, you got to see it in the theater. People would be really mad at me after because most people would not be into what the lighthouse is trying to do. You know, that's that's not what they want to do with their couple hours at a theater. So I try to be like, no, I really think you'll really like it. Like I think anyone could get, but whatever. You know, right? It's it's tricky because you want to support, you want to do your part to with word of mouth, right? It's your job if you like something to try and share it, but you hope you're not pushing people away. You just have to have a friend group of people outside of the film industry. And then when you go to a wedding, like I did last weekend, everyone's like, takes, they're hanging on every word of your recommendation and you like feel like you're the, you know, the master of it all. Oh, I don't have that. And on top of that, <laughs> I was going like, to say, wow, fr- friends really- outside the film industry? Like, <laughs> It's what happens when you switch later in life. You, all these people, they, they put you on a pedestal and they're like, I can't believe you're chasing your dream. Wow. And I'm like, in the moment, it's a grind, but it feels very good in that moment. And they will see it. And they will. And and I, I think I have convinced people to see things in theaters. And here's actually a topper on top of that. I give people passes to movie theaters for like their wedding gift. I'm like, here's a date night. Go to a movie theater. That's good. I like that. 
and see that's, the North. Watch the craft. Yeah, <laughs> you can't pick the movie, but I like <laughs> that. All right. So you can indeed use word of mouth to get people to go to your movie. Moving on from word of mouth, let's talk about the other great word of mouth generator of all time, NAB. And the number one question people are always asking if they wander around the show floor, what did, what did you see that was cool? Uh, we've obviously done a lot of NAB coverage. There's a lot of articles on the site. There have already been a couple of podcasts. But like in all of that coverage, I totally missed a cool story that George pointed my way this morning. So I just wanted to do a like, what we might have missed things about NAB and whatnot. So George, what you were telling me about something very awesome. Yeah, so all the things at NAB are cool. It's always cool to see all the toys. And for someone like me who mostly thinks about movies and content in terms of uh, other other aspects, I'm really always struck by how much the excitement at NAB is about the potential because nothing's created to be judged yet. It's all about like, what could you create with this thing? And that's what's so cool about it to me. It's a fun energy and in a, and in a lot of ways, a positive one too, but it's also exhausting. And I saw this thing. We all saw this thing, Audio Design Desk. It feels like the thing that's going to blow up or change. It's the thing you didn't see coming, I guess. There's always stuff that you're like, oh, that kind of fits on the progression. But I think as as someone put it, it like they jumped as Rafi, who did a lot of the corresponding with us, put it, 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 it like they jumped a bunch of stages of like evolution. You can do your audio editing in this with this tool and directly in Final Cut Premiere and Avid with a huge royalty-free music and sound effects library. And you're just like the ease with which you can just immediately add and change like fully temp tracks. And it's like all on your keyboard. I don't know how to describe it, but we did a video on it. You should check it on YouTube. We have written about it and you should go to their website, add.app. It's it's just something that I think like as a person who well, and now this is like 12, 15 more years ago, but did like sound editing on something that had like bullet shots and had to carefully place the sound of that in oh each spot. <laughs> or as somebody who had to try and learn some parts of Pro Tools to try and do some of the audio work on, you know, a short or whatever I was working on. This is like, it, it just feels like it, it has taken it to a whole new place where you're not, doing it because it's tedious and it has to be done. You are, I know this sounds like ad copy, I know, but it's, it's how I feel. You're playing with it. Like you're creating with it on the fly. Like you're like, oh, this would sound cool. Or this might feel cool. Or what if I tried this? There's no, there's no tedium related to it. It's just a playful process. And it looks cool, the interface. And you can play back instantly and add all kinds of layers. And it just makes that, to me, that kind of sound work was like tedium and misery. And I think it makes it fun and playful um, and creative. And I think it's critical to be playing with sound in that earlier edit stage because that helps craft the moment. And it's something that I think is often an afterthought in especially like the earlier shorts development phase. But it's like so crucial to seeing if the moment is even working. We have this walking around the film industry leftover assumption that you should be doing these posts in these stages, right? Where like you edit picture and then you stop and then you do sound and then you stop and then you do color and then you stop. And there's like very real technical reasons why that is beneficial. But in the last five or six years, we've seen a lot of technology come out that make the possibility of like, oh no, you can be like doing some really sophisticated sound work 
while you also edit. And then you can see if the sound effect changes your picture design, where you're like, oh, I can hold on that shot a little longer because this tense sound effect I'm adding is building the suspense so I don't have to cut out as quickly or whatnot. Or like just all advertising editing where you're like syncing these little like sound hits to the picture hits to give it energy, to give it momentum, to give it focus. And, you know, you can do that in your NLE, your nonlinear editing platform. But traditionally, the audio tools in an NLE are really limited. And this platform is a full DAW. It's a full digital audio workstation. So you can start doing all sorts of crazier stuff. You can start putting way more filters on your audio. You can start bussing it around so that you can start doing like 5.1 stuff. And, and you can start grouping things more powerfully. I mean, the big thing you get out of a DAW out of a DAW is groups. So you can make like a dialogue group and then you can say, oh, I want all the dialogue louder. And then it's just one slider to like bring the dialogue bus up as opposed to having to go in one at a time to all the clips or all the tracks that have dialogue on them in your NLE and raise that. So like it's, I'm excited to see anything that brings more of this power to editing because I think it's important. I also want to mention there's a cool features I didn't talk about. Like it has the embedded sync points on the sounds so like one of the examples they have on the site, but I saw them using it with like, I think they were using it with punches, but they're using it with footsteps. Like you drop it in and it it's smart. Like it knows where to land, like to the picture. So That's you're not so like, cool. it's, it's very cool. It's not like you're sliding it around, figuring that out. You can, you can like add all kinds of weird mood. Like it has like adjectives that help you decide like, or artists or instrumentation, you can pick all these different aspects to enhance or change about an effect or, uh, or a temp track like that makes it fun to play with the mood completely, like with total latitude. I don't know how else to describe it, but like you can have like your score temp track piece in there. It hits perfectly when you land it. And then you're like, hmm, maybe I want to push it towards this vibe. And then no, I'm going to go towards this completely other vibe. Like it's a color wheel or something. Anyway, wow. go ahead, Charles. Well, no, I was going to say, I'm, I was going to say the same thing you are, which is like, the exciting thing for me is watching new, new tools come in that accept a new paradigm of interface. Like, I'm Pro Tools certified. I've used Pro Tools a bunch. I have a good handle on some parts of Pro Tools. But Pro Tools is very much built from like an audio engineer's perspective. And like, yeah. once you learn it, it's super powerful. But like, there's all sorts of language that makes no sense. And there's all <laughs> sorts of like, insider lingo like wet versus dry is the first one that comes to mind but also all this other <laughs> stuff where like if you are not already a audio nerd like you just don't know it and so the thing that jumped out at me also was like watching this thing that i was like oh this is built assuming an, a, a lower this is built assuming like let us start from scratch about how people who are not already masters of the software might want to interface with controlling their sound as opposed to let us assume you're going to have to take a five-day course to get up to speed on how to use this, and then we'll certify you, and then you'll be ready to start as an apprentice. And I'm and like, that—that that is why I compared it. You said five-day course, which brings perfectly. I compared it to aperture and lighting, and that aperture suddenly allowed people to just look at the thing and be like, "Oh, I can play with my light. I can take it in all these directions, and it's not based on." a bunch of knowledge I've accumulated that I have to have in training. It's based on certain like natural filmmaking instincts of like, what color do I want this light to be? Like that, that maybe you just have, and you have a color wheel, like you have room to play. And you mentioned wet and dry. And I thought, well, in this tool, if it was wet and dry, that would be how it sounds. <laughs> That's it. Like it would be more related to that. Like if you were trying to make it sound more wet or more dry, as opposed to terminology related to, 
I always think of Pro Tools as like you're in the cockpit of an audio plane, which a lot of us are not ready to jump into because cockpits have all kinds of like tools and gadgets and stuff. You're like, what the hell is all this stuff? You know, this is the more filmmaker friendly, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I did a seven day, I I did a five day training course in Pro Tools. And at the end of it, I was like, okay, I still don't quite feel like, you know, whereas like Resolve, I just read, like I spent half a day reading the manual and was like, okay, I got a handle on this. I know what I'm doing here. And that's like color grading with all of those buttons. Whereas Pro Tools is very much, and Pro Tools isn't incentivized to change because they have people who've spent $60,000 on complicated Pro Tools boards and hardware setups who've learned to use the software who make their living off of it. So they're never going to completely reinvent their UI. Someone else has to do it. Just for those sitting there in your car wondering, what the fuck is wet is wet and dry? If you use a plugin in Pro Tools, <laughs> what is it? if you use a plugin in Pro Tools, there's usually a wet versus dry knob. And the wet versus dry knob is like a master control knob for how much of the original sound gets mixed back in after the plugin. So if something's fully wet, it's completely affected by the plugin. If it's fully dry, the plugin is no longer affecting it at all. Now, you could also call wet versus dry just like a master control knob for the motherfucking plugin. But because <laughs> of the original way in which, like once in the analog days, once you applied a plugin, it was physically applied. It was like a thing you were patching into the system. So it made sense to have a knob that was like wet versus dry, which is like how much the original signal versus how much the affected signal are getting mixed back together. But in a digital space, still calling it wet and dry is just like a nod to the old way of doing things. And like you could also just call it anything else. Intensity would make more sense, right? Like how overall intensity of this whole plugin. But instead, they call it wet versus dry. And it's not about how it sounds like crinkly versus sloshy. (laughs) <laughs> no, it is not crinkly versus sloshy, although it would be so great. All right, we're going to wrap it all up. That was an NAB thing that I missed. I completely missed Audio Design Desk and all of the cool stuff they're doing and the tight linking they're doing. So I was excited to talk about it. Do we know when this will be available for the lay person? You can try it for free. Oh my um, gosh. www.add.app. A-P-P. Audiodesigndesk.app. All right, so we have a question from Isaac. Isaac says, I'm strictly targeting my career for television. I'm not currently interested in features. Although, you know, in two or three years, I might want to transition to something like that. I'm looking for a small, light digital camera. Hybrid, probably. Although, I mean, sort of everything is hybrid these days, like stills and video, that would make the best director's viewfinder. Ideally, something that could cover both Super 35 or large format field of view and has a decent screen good battery life and will be small enough to have with me on set when lining up shots? Or does everybody still use Artemis? Now, let's go ahead and start with what you use a director's viewfinder for. So the beauty of a director's viewfinder is most motion picture cameras are kind of heavy. So you're not usually bringing even the modern ones, even like an Alexa LF. Like once you have a lens on it and stuff, it's like 12 pounds or whatever. I mean, the LF mini, the LF, the full-size LF is like 30 pounds all built up. But even an LF mini all built up, 12, 14 pounds, you're not going to carry it around all day. You're usually not bringing it to the scout. So what a director's finder lets you do is it lets you preview the field of view of various lenses, which can be incredibly helpful in both pre-production and then on set. So in pre-production, you might take it to set and you sort of block out your scene, maybe with whoever's on the scout with you. You know, maybe the director stands in while the DP takes shots, something like that. Sometimes you cast stand-ins to come with you on scouts and you sort of block out the scene with the camera 
so you can get a sense of what you're covering. And this is super helpful for the whole team. The DP now knows, oh, if I want to pre-light, I can show these stills that have like a really good sense of the field of view to the gaffer and the key grip. You can show it to art departments so they can get a sense of what they have to dress and what they don't have to dress. It's a really powerful tool. And then on set, you tend to use it even though your full-size camera is there. So you can start getting ahead of things, blocking out where the next shot setup might be. Usually you're using it first thing in the morning, you're watching a rehearsal, you've got your director's finder out and you're, you're blocking out the scene, you're talking to the DP about like, oh, I'm going to cover it from this side and then let's cover it from this side, move the camera like this and everybody's taking notes. And then, you know, regularly I've been on shoots where like, as soon as you say, all right, check the gate on that shot, we're moving on to the next one. You're whipping your finder out, you're shopping for the next shot, you're really locking in what you're moving to next before moving the heavy camera around. So it's a really useful tool. The default tool that is everywhere is an app called Artemis. It's available for iOS and Android. It is available for iPads and phones. And it is Artemis is great because it has all of the tools a filmmaker could possibly need for shooting your director's finder. It, you know, it has like pre-built little field of view things. You can set it to what sensor you're using. You're on Alexa LF, you hit that button, you're on red, you hit that button, you're on Vericam, you hit that button, you whip out, you tell it what brand of lenses you're doing. You tell it which lenses you have in your kit. You can flip between the lenses you're working with. Every time you hit record, it records a little still with all that metadata on it. So it says like Alexa LF shooting with the signature prime 18 millimeter and it shoots that whole thing. It'll make little reports for you if you want to do photo boards. Artemis is great. It is well worth the $40 or whatever. But there's one problem with Artemis, which is it does not have perfect recreation of the field of view of the actual lenses because your phone sensor is tiny. Because of that, all it's doing is doing its best equivalent math of what a field of view of a lens is going to be look, look like, but it's not going to be perfect because the sensor size is so different from the actual sensor size you shoot with. So what most filmmakers do at this point, and what I wish, uh, Artemis is actually making a physical viewfinder that is like $10,000. So we're not even going to talk about that. But like, somebody needs to do this. Sigma is the closest, but someone will. What most filmmakers do is we have a camera. Usually it is a camera we shoot other stuff with. For me, it's Fuji because I love my Fuji. But Sigma FP is also very popular for this. And it's a little interchangeable lens camera. And, you know, we use it with our zoom lens at prep in order to get field of view. But then what's especially cool is like, let's say you're on a PL mount lens shoot. My little Fuji, I have a PL mount lens adapter. And then I can put the actual physical lens we're shooting on on my Fuji, and then I can line up shots with that, and the whole unit weighs the weight of the lens plus one pound, so it's a three-pound lens, like four pounds. I can like hold it in my hand, I can run around, I can block it all out, and then I can shoot stills with it. So for me, my recommendation for you is to probably look at the Sigma FP if that's what you're looking for. You can get a PL adapter or an LPL adapter for that, for whatever lenses you're shooting on, and the Sigma FP has pre-built finder mode, so you can put it into a finder mode for like the Airy LF or others, and it will accurately reproduce their sensor size. What it doesn't do, and I desperately want it to do, is then print on the image like what the sensor size is and what lens you're shooting on. And I wish they would do that so badly. All they have to do is let you create little QR codes you put on each lens, and then as you mount the lens, you like show the QR code so that it can know what lens is on it, because it won't know automatically. And the LF already does stuff. I mean, the FP, the Sigma FP already does other stuff with QR codes. You can use QR codes. Like if you're shooting a shot, a show with four Sigma FPs, you can use QR codes to match all their settings to each other. So you get one set up right, and then you have it show its QR code, and then the others all match. 
or just like let me put on the menu in the back what lens I'm mounting, even if you don't want to do QR codes. The Sigma FP is like the closest to what we want. It's like so close to what we want. It's like it's one of those things where like because it's so close, it's frustrating. It didn't get all the way where we want it. But the the FP is probably your best bet. Not the new one, the FPL, the plain old FP, which is still getting firmware updates. The FPL is like more for still shooters. It has higher higher megapixels. I wouldn't worry about it. Just get the plain old FP. I shoot Fuji mostly, and I have a lot of Fuji lenses, but they don't have a full-frame sensor. And you probably want a full-frame sensor if you're going to be shooting full-frame jobs. So Sigma FP or something like the Panasonic S1H or like a, a Sony A7S III, something like that, A7S IV. You see those all the time because then you can use it as your finder. But then let's say you're just doing a little weekend job. You can just go shoot it on the A7S IV. So those are sort of my recommendations. I, we're so close. Like one more firmware update out of Sigma. Or what really needs to happen is they need to make the Artemis edition of Sigma where like Artemis and Sigma work together somehow. That would be great. Because like everything else Artemis does is perfect. You get these nice reports. Like if I could open Artemis and tell Artemis which lens I'm using and have that sync with the Sigma, that would be killer. Artemis is building their own thing that's like a director's finder with a PL mount that does all the Artemis-y stuff on the back end. But it's going to be low volume, so they'll be like 10 grand a pop. That'll be a rental item, I think, for most people. I definitely think Artemis was the tool that I didn't know I needed until I was using it. And I was like, oh, duh. (laughs) It's really hard to imagine living without. I know. But you're suggesting that there's a better future, perhaps, that includes it. And I mean, my frustration is just it doesn't line up perfectly because of the small sensor size. Mm -hmm. So the solution will be will probably involve something that like you sync to your iPad with Bluetooth but as a full-size sensor. And so the people to do that, in my mind, are Sigma. Like, if I could do something where my Sigma FP links to Artemis Pro, I think they would sell a million Sigma FPs. But maybe that's just me. Mm, I hope Sigma's listening. I'm, I literally was just thinking, I got to email the people I know at Sigma this podcast, yeah. and I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it for today, right? Yep. All right, everybody. I'm on the internet at charleshain.com and I'm doing a project this summer. I'm doing youtube stuff lately, which is super fun. I've never done youtube stuff before, but it's like real fun. So check out my youtube stuff and I'll see you next week. I'm at Lost in Graceland. Um, I just uh, hosted an after show for the podcast American Hostage starring John Hamm, where we geeked out about making audio feel filmic. So go listen to that now. It's available on their feed. That's pretty cool. Uh, I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can check out everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com and on our YouTube channel where a lot of the stuff we talked about, well, the, the thing we talked about relating to NAB is up in a video about audio, but there's also videos about cameras and lenses and batteries and all kinds of other fun things and toys and good stuff. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast and leave us a comment. We also mentioned some of the filmmakers who have been on as guests lately. You might have to look through the past because we've been posting a lot lately, but there's a lot of good stuff. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and and other meta platforms like Instagram. And I'm George Edelman, at George Edelman on Twitter as well. Thanks so much for listening. Mm